Hello, friends. Thank you for listening to Pod of Jake. I'm Jake. You can reach me anytime by emailing jake at blogofjake.com or DM me on Twitter at 0fjake. I always love to hear from fans of the podcast, and your support of the show means a lot to me. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by AG1, the best foundational nutrition supplement on the market. You may have heard about AG1 by now and already decide you want to try it. If that's the case, go to drinkag1.com slash podofjake and order your first pack now. If you're not familiar, AG1 is a foundational nutrition supplement with 75 high-quality vitamins, probiotics, and whole food-sourced ingredients to support whole body health. I started drinking AG1 a couple of years ago because it seemed like the most high-quality, cost-effective way to get the vitamins and nutrients I need. Now I drink it almost every day before I eat or drink anything else besides water. It tastes good, makes me feel great, and sets the tone for a healthy day, all for about $3 a day. So if you're looking for a simpler, effective investment for your health, try AG1 and get five free AG1 travel packs and a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash podofjake. That's drinkag1.com slash p-o-d-o-f-j-a-k-e. Check it out. Thank you, Scott, for coming on and joining me on the podcast today. I really appreciate you taking the time. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while now. Uh, you are the first employee at Andreessen Horowitz alongside Mark and Ben. Uh, you're a managing partner now, and the firm's called A16Z, uh, different than when you started and a little bit briefer and easier to say uh, and quicker <laughs> to type. Uh, and you spend a lot of time sort of paying attention to healthcare and bio, investing in those areas. Uh, focused internally on investor relations and growth initiatives and operations at large, really just critical to growing the firm from, you know, zero to where it is now and uh, quite an accomplishment. So you're also the author of a best-selling book, uh, The Secrets of Sand Hill Road. So it's great to have you on. And uh, I think the best place to start would be for those who may not be familiar with you. I think a lot of people are, and certainly a lot more familiar with Andreessen Horowitz or A16Z, uh, but it'd be great to sort of hear your story from as early as you're willing to start to where you are today and talk about some of the decisions you made along the way. Yeah, that's awesome. First of all, Jake, thanks for having me. I appreciate it and uh, excited to jump in. So, all right. So uh, maybe I'll, I'll give you my uh, childhood history in hopefully two or three sentences, uh, just so you have a perspective of where I came from. I grew up in uh, Houston. Um, and uh, I guess maybe the simple way I would describe my childhood was I was a precocious nerd, uh, maybe is the simple way to describe it. So uh, I was uh, always uh, thinking about the future uh, and always more comfortable, quite frankly, talking to uh, people older than me than necessarily people who were uh, kind of my same age. Um, and uh, just was kind of a, I guess you'd call it like a typical type A kind of personality. So, you know, always kind of very focused on schoolwork and what was next and things of that sort. Um, and uh, that was kind of, you know, I would say probably the, the most uh, the, the simplest way to describe kind of where I came from and, uh, you know, kind of where I got my start in life. Great. And then so, uh, you know, interested in talking to older folks and technology and things as a kid, but ultimately you decided when it came time to school, you went and studied law, um, at least after undergrad, you went to law school. Um, can you talk a little bit about what led to that decision and ultimately deciding that like law wasn't the path that you wanted to stay on? 
Yeah, it was funny. So I didn't really, um, you know, when I was in high school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, uh, but uh, I, uh, and I was not a very good reader, which is kind of somewhat ironic because I love reading right now. And I'll never forget, uh, I remember the summer before I applied to colleges, I got some application. I can't remember if it was Harvard or one of the applications. And it said, you know, tell us about the three most recent books you've read. And so I decided I'd better read three books that summer so I could actually write something. Um, and I ended up um, reading uh, a book by Alan Dershowitz, who some of the listeners may know who is he was. He may still be a professor at Harvard Law School, but kind of a very well-known uh, kind of litigation constitutional law scholar. And uh, quite frankly, just got really interested in the law from an academic perspective as a result of doing that. And so that was kind of what pointed me in that direction. Um, as you mentioned, um, I went to law school thinking that that's what I wanted to do. Um, I kind of discovered about halfway through law school that um, while I loved the law intellectually, I wasn't as excited about the practice of law. And that's probably an unfair uh, statement since I didn't really know what the practice of law was. But um, uh, I read this book called The Lost Lawyer, which is a, a book by a guy named Arthur Cronman, who I think is still alive and is a professor at either Yale or Harvard Law School. And he kind of described the lawyer as like business counselor was kind of the original way that kind of lawyers interacted with their clients. And that was kind of my conception of what I wanted to do was to kind of be more like a business counselor to people. And, um, you know, this is a longer story, but, you know, the, you know, the law firm practice had changed since he wrote that book. And, you know, law firms were obviously very focused more on obviously transactional billing and things of that sort. And so I just found that like intellectually, while the law had a lot of appeal to me, the practice was less interesting. And so I ended up doing what any good law school graduate who doesn't want to practice law does, which was to join an investment bank uh, right at the beginning of what turned out to be the dot-com boom and bust. So that's kind of how I ended up basically working broadly in the technology industry, uh, notwithstanding the fact that I had uh, come to that industry without a whole lot of background. Yeah. And I definitely want to uh, dig into the banking days just a little bit. That's how I started yeah. my career as well. So I can certainly uh, sympathize with some of that stuff. But you mentioned something interesting about uh, reading, saying, you know, you were never a big reader. Um, you were a self-described nerd growing up. So like a lot of times <laughs> nerds are sort of associated with reading a lot of books and uh, things like that. But I myself was not a big reader growing up and sort of have a bit of like a journey of like how I sort of started getting into reading. And now I read a lot pretty much every night before bed and then a little bit. In addition to that, can you describe like, you know, you, you read these few books because you sort of had to for the law school application, but have right. your reading practices, you said you read a ton these days, um, how have they sort of like shifted and developed over time, like fiction, nonfiction, certain subjects, certain habits affiliated with like your reading, like reading before bed or on the weekends? I'm just curious, yeah. like your reading practice and, and how it went from sort of nothing to uh, reading a lot these days. Yeah, it's a great question. So yeah, as you said, like, yeah, I, I kind of read, I always, I always read what I had to read for school in high school, for sure, but I never really read outside of school. And uh, it was applying to college where I finally realized I had to do this in order to be able to answer these essay questions. I, I think what changed for me was a couple things. Number one was um, um, I had a chance, I was super, super lucky to be able to go to Stanford for my undergraduate degree. And um, little known story, which is uh, I actually got rejected from Stanford when I applied uh, initially out of high school and uh, ended up actually spending my freshman year at the University of Pennsylvania uh, in their uh, in the Wharton School there, which is kind of, you know, their business school. And uh, for the first time in my life, I actually found that I had like what I would call a more intellectual interest in things. And so Wharton is a fantastic school um, and, and they've done a great job. Uh, at the time I was there, though, it was very what I would call pre-professional. So everyone was like, OK, I know what I want to do and this is how I'm going to get there. 
And I always thought that was me, quite frankly. And then I kind of discovered that somehow I just kind of had an interest more broadly in some, you know, just general esoteric intellectual issues. And so I was lucky enough to be able to transfer to Stanford. Um, I even got so far in my journey that I actually was going to be a religious studies major at one point in time. I'll never forget. I called my mom and she was like, you know, aghast that I was going to do that. Um, but I, I mentioned that story just because that was kind of a little bit of my journey to just kind of trying to read as a way to just, quite frankly, expand my mind a little bit. So I've always been, so once that started, I've always been a 100% nonfiction reader. Um, and I like to read kind of topically. So I like to kind of find areas that I'm just interested in and read hopefully two or three books that generally cover the same topic. Um, so that was kind of part of the journey. The second part of the journey, actually, uh, I credit, um, I think it was Mark Andreessen with, uh, which is um, the freedom to not have to finish a book if you don't uh, like it or you feel like you've kind of already got the essence of the book. And I don't know that he actually does this in practice, but I remember, I think, having a conversation with him. And I never felt that way. I always felt like you had to do the death march um, at any time you started something. And I felt this compulsion to go finish it. And once I kind of adopted that mindset, quite frankly, I just found that that really opened me up to being willing to explore new things that I didn't really understand or, or know that I might be interested in with the safety that I always knew I could basically jettison it if I needed to. So that was kind of that was my journey on reading. Basically, I still don't do don't do as much as I would like today, but uh, that's what I aspire to do, at least. Yeah, it's interesting. Both of those parts of the journey, especially I think uh, the second part I can relate to because I sort of know intellectually, like, I don't need to finish this book. I don't need to finish this book. I don't need to finish this book. But right. I, no matter what I do, I like have to finish it. And it's this thing that I, I know it's sort of wrong and that I'd be better off probably just skipping around. And like you said, once you get the essence of it, you know, pick up a new one and not treat them as like these religious texts. Like you go, you know, it's not like you're reading sort of an article online and you feel compelled to finish it. Although those are of course shorter, you just sort of navigate the internet and jump around and, uh, yeah. To be able to have a similar relationship with books, I think would be great. But uh, I would be lying if I said I was yeah. quite there yet. So uh, I, encourage you, yeah, I encourage you to work on it. It's a, it's been, it was a big unlock for me. But uh, so I have a million books. Uh, you know, my wife hates to have a million books sitting on my bedside table that all have you know bookmarks somewhere at various points on that uh, that uh, are unfinished and probably, quite frankly, will never be finished. Uh, and at some point, I need to actually move them into uh, you know an actual storage area instead of keeping them on the side of my bed table. Yeah, totally. And then I want to go back to something you mentioned from the first part of your answer as well, which is something that that didn't come up in uh, my diligence, but the fact that you got rejected from Stanford the first time yeah. around, one of my favorite sort of, uh, I guess, features of people's stories, my probably biased from my own is that I, I love to hear like when people sort of get a no on the first time, and then you know, they go back and, and they come through whether that's building a business or getting into a college or whatever it might be, even, uh, you know, finding a girlfriend, whatever it might be. <laughs> and uh, I think, you know, basically, I'm, I'm curious if you can sort of rewind to that yeah. earliest part of your story. You know, obviously, Wharton is, uh, you know, not a school for slouches. It's an amazing school. And you were able to get in there, it sounds like on the first time, but you persisted and you wanted to go to Stanford and you ended up going to Stanford. So um, what was like sort of the nature of that move? Was it basically about that uh, yeah. intellectual piece not being satisfied at, at Wharton? Or how did you think about sort of going back on that one? Yeah, so let me give you a couple of thoughts. So first of all, I want to let me acknowledge upfront, like these are obviously, as you mentioned, these are kind of first world problems. So, uh, you know, nobody should feel sorry for uh, me or anybody else for not being able to get accepted to Stanford. Um, you know, two things I would say. One was, 
I always wanted to go to Stanford. Uh, quite frankly, I'd never been to California. I'd never been to Stanford before. But for some reason in my mind, that was kind of just like where I wanted to be. And, I, and it was completely uninformed, to be totally honest. But it was just, you know, that was something in my head. Um, the, the, the interesting thing for me was, so like, as I said, I was kind of a precocious nerd. Um, so like I was, you know, I always did well in school. I was, you know, very active. Like I was president of my class all the time. And so I was like a big leadership person. And so, um, you know, kind of, I just thought like, hey, like I must be, you know, you know, like a place like Stanford, you know, probably, you know, would be a good fit uh, for that. But what I what I learned through that process was just, look, I was kind of, you know, I had like on paper had lots of interesting things, but I, I just wasn't that distinguishing at the end of the day. There were a lot of people like me who, you know, had good grades and good test scores and, you know, were leaders in their schools and stuff. And, you know, it kind of introduced me to a little bit of the reality of the crapshoot of the admissions process in colleges, uh, which, you know, I think, quite frankly, has gotten even more so uh, these days when I look at my, you know, where my kids are. Um, but anyways, um, so, yeah, what what kind of got me interested in it was one was I think I just had this long desire to be there. And I felt like, yeah, I got rejected and I wasn't quite ready to accept that. And so I said, I'll give it another shot. And then, as I mentioned, the second thing was a little bit of and again, I don't want to take anything away from my experience at Wharton, which was fantastic. But um, I always felt like I was a very pre-professional person. And what I found was uh, when I got there and was surrounded by a lot of people who, you know, I, who had similar ideas that I had this kind of desire to, um, you know, take a little bit of a step back and just kind of try to think more expansively outside of just going into a pure into a straight business program. And uh, it was probably just like, I don't know, if it was just luck or time error or what it turned out to be. But um, when I got to Stanford, I just felt like I had more freedom to explore, you know, just different things that I hadn't learned about before. And um, uh, and so I think that was it. I mean, it was definitely a function of, look, I felt uh, a little bit unrequited and I needed to kind of, you know, satisfy my own curiosity as to whether I could actually get accepted on the second time around. And I was, you know, didn't have that much pride that I was, wasn't willing to give that a shot. But some of it was also just kind of, I think, this kind of, you know, desire to be able to expand my, uh, you know, horizons outside of kind of, you know, a, a just a, a more core business curriculum. Yeah, it's interesting. And uh, I took note of something you mentioned, you know, always being like president of your class and things like this, because I think back to what you mentioned about your original sort of intention going to law school was to sort of be, um, I forget the exact words that you used, but sort of like the right hand man to businessmen, entrepreneurs, CEOs, yeah. um, something like that. So did you sort of, um, it, it would sort of seem natural for like a class president type A type person that um, not to like, I don't like putting labels or anything like that, but just sort of that that mold to sort of want to go and and be the leader of something like you sort of said to go be the CEO or, or whatever it might be. But you seem to have sort of had this idea quite early that you wanted to be sort of the um, more of like the right hand man or like the consigliere or whatever you might want to call it. And that yeah. sort of seems like sort of where you've landed and you've been, you know, invaluable as as sort of that role not obviously as a lawyer but as sort of the operations nuts and bolts just taking care of everything that needed to be taken care of and you know your name's not on the building as they say but like you were the first person like i said at the introduction besides mark and ben at andreessen horowitz and have been there ever since and just like i think they would both say you know couldn't have become what it is today without you and so how did you sort of get that idea, if, if you can recall, or, or how did you think about like the difference between sort of being the guy and being part of a team where maybe you're not sort of in the spotlight and sort of yeah. widely recognized as the leader? Yeah, um, it, it's actually really interesting. It's an interesting question. I, and it's, 
I haven't thought about it a lot, so uh, I'll give you a very raw response to your question. Um, you know, I think the turning point for me was, so as, as I think we started to talk about, so I went to law school, uh, you know, and then I went into investment banking from there. And obviously we can talk about that. It was, you know, again, kind of height of the dot-com bubble. And then, you know, I, and then I came out of there and ultimately joined Mark and Ben at what was at the time called LoudCloud, which was a startup that they had started in September 99. And I joined them in 2000. And I think the turning point for me between kind of, you know, I hate to use this terminology, but let's call it being a number two versus a number one, um, was um, I started to kind of just through my banking experience in particular, and then also with Mark and Ben, I just started to get a greater realization of the distinction between at least the Silicon Valley conception of a CEO, which I, I believe very strongly, and we believe very strongly at it in Dries and Horowitz, this idea of kind of a product-based founder CEO. And as much as I, you know, maybe in my mind thought that I would like to be able to do that, I just quite frankly had a realization that, look, that's not my highest and best skill set is uh, I'm not, you know, I, I'm not, first of all, deep enough technically in many areas to be able to do this. And I found that I didn't have, I had lots of interesting theories and ideas, but I didn't have the creativity that I saw when I looked at particularly like Mark and Ben and just kind of their vision of the future. Uh, and I saw this a lot, obviously, as a banker in the companies that we took public, you know, a lot of those CEOs were also similar archetypes. So I think that was kind of a little bit of it was a realization in my mind of that, you know, uh, if I was going to be in the Valley doing technology stuff, uh, it wasn't an exclusive jurisdiction, but that it would be harder and it may not play as well to my strengths to kind of be the product facing CEO. But I felt like I could be a leader in a different way. I mean, I, I think of you know, I, I love managing people. I've always led organizations. And so it was a little bit of kind of leading, but leading in a different capacity where kind of product depth and product knowledge and kind of, you know, a vision of the future from a product perspective was less of a requirement to be successful in that role. So that's 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 my quick psychoanalysis of it uh, based on your question, but it's a really interesting question. Yeah, no, that's a that's an amazing answer, especially given that uh, it sounds like you, you haven't really put much intentional thought into it before, but I think it's very reflective and, um, I'm curious, I guess, when you sort of looked around and, and you're IPOing these tech founders and you look at Mark and Ben or whoever it might be, and you see this creative creativity or like product first thinking that you're just sort of realizing like, okay, that's, you know, I, I have some of this, but it's not like totally to that degree. What is it that you sort of found early, if you can like sort of boil it down as much as possible, that that you think you have that you look around and it's like, okay, you know, I don't have this, but I do have this. And this is sort of what I can double and triple down on as I continue to develop my career from, you know, you you leave law school, you go into banking, you leave banking, you go to loud cloud, and you're sort of realizing like, these are the threads that I want to just double and triple down for myself, because I think this is something that I have that is pretty rare to see like to this degree in other people. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if I was uh, self-aware enough to know exactly uh what I was, what I was great at, but, but I'll tell you, it evolved over time. So the honest answer is, look, I went into banking and, you know, as a young junior banker, basically most of your job is in what I would call very individual contributor work. Basically it's, you know, building financial models. It's, uh, you know, going on the road with companies uh, and helping them kind of tell the story about the IPO. Um, you know, it's, it's a lot of, a lot of it is pitch work basically, right? So like trying to pitch clients to convince them why it's a, why it's a good idea to do business with you. But at the end of the day, you know, there's not what I would consider like a lot of managerial activity in an investment bank. Uh, it's largely, you know, you have particular discrete assignments and you have to get them done. And so when I joined LoudCloud, I initially joined in a similar context. So I got hired 
into like a hybrid business development role and also, uh, you know, a finance role in part because we were raising a bunch of capital and I was the only person who had some experience raising capital at that time. Um, but it was all basically still what I would consider, you know, me as an individual contributor doing kind of, you know, uh, very, very clearly articulated tasks that needed to get done. And the turning point for me was two things. One was um, probably the most influential was Ben. So Ben, uh, you know, was always very kind to me from early on and said, hey, look, you're great at what you do. But like if you want to really grow and scale and be part of a broader operating organization, you have to do two things. One is you have to learn domains outside of just pure finance. And then two is you also have to begin your journey from migrating from individual contributor into a manager and a leader in the organization. And um, I'll fully admit to you, like, those were both, like, daunting for me at first, uh, because I knew the domain of being an individual contributor. I knew how to do the spreadsheets that he gave me. And, you know, I could score, you know, 100% or 99% on those and feel good about the work product that I presented to him and others and feel good about myself. Um, and I'll never forget the very first time uh, when Ben finally moved me out of a role like that and put me in charge of a managerial job, uh, which was not, you know, me performing an individual contributor role. Um, one of the things he said to me, he said, look, like you, one of the things you're going to have to get used to is you're used to getting A pluses on tests. And that's great. And you've done that throughout your career. Now in this new job, probably the answer is if you actually are, are you know, realistic with yourself, you're probably going to score 50, 60 percent on almost everything you do. Um, but like that's fine. That's just the nature of moving from a task driven world into a managerial world where it's a lot more of decision making and trying to make decisions with limited information as opposed to. Can you prove that the spreadsheet actually ties out at the end of the day? And, um, you know, if I'm being, as I said, totally honest, like that was super, super scary for me. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I am in, immensely great, uh, grateful to Ben in particular for pushing me outside of my comfort zone. But, you know, that was like, uh, you know, my, my nature, despite that I work in the venture capital world, look, I mean, I, I must admit I'm a more conservative person than most. I mean, you know, for God's sakes, I went to law school, right? So like that's, you know, about as conservative as you can get in terms of your own career path and development. So it was a major, major push from, from, from him to me to basically grow into, um, you know, a lot of the things that I've kind of, you know, been able to mature into as part of my broader career. Right. And obviously that's become a, uh, you know, major theme of, of what you do being, you know, managing partner at this firm with, I don't know how many employees exactly you guys have today, but in the a little over 500 today. Yeah. Yeah. Over 500. So quite a lot of people and, and obviously seeing that and experiencing that, um, you know, Andreessen Horowitz wasn't your first time you had done it at Louds Cloud and Opsware. Right. And then uh, I believe at HP as well with a fairly sizable organization that you were basically managing. Um, so sort of from the earliest days of first taking on that challenge of, okay, I'm going to not be just sort of this one man execution machine. And I'm going to go and try to manage people, even if, you know, my scores are going to go from 99% to 60% or even more so like, I can't even really figure out how I'm scoring. Cause it's like a very sort of long-term right. thing. And it's just not as objective nearly as sort of pulling together a really nice presentation or spreadsheet or whatever it might be and saying like, you know. With a pretty high degree of certainty this couldn't have been done much better or whatever it might be I, I sort of you know crushed that task so when you were first starting up and through sort of where you are today obviously a lot of lessons along the way i, I can imagine but um are there principles in particular that are like if you had to sort of teach someone the 80 20 of managing people the things that sort of seem to have an outsized impact and matter the most or, or that you think about most often when it comes to just managing teams, yeah. um, maybe regardless of size, but maybe at particular sizes? Yeah, I think there are a couple things, at least over time, that um, 
probably uh, kind of, yeah, I don't know if it's, a, I wouldn't say it's a guidebook, but some principles at least that I think about. One is um, uh, what I what I came to find over time was um, I used to get enjoyment from, you know, making sure the spreadsheet tied out. And obviously, as I said, that you're, to your point, you know, it was frustrating when the kind of measure of your output becomes much more amorphous when you're in a managerial role versus uh, when you're in a contributor role. And at least for me, what I found, and I've encouraged people when they make this transition as well, is you have to learn to embrace and like the, you know, other things that come with being a manager. So the idea of helping people from a career development perspective, the idea of providing guidance and, um, you know, oversight, uh, you know, for people to help them kind of develop new skill sets. Um, even quite frankly, the idea of people who come to you one day and say they have to go leave, they're leaving the firm to go somewhere else because like you've got to the point where they've grown so much that you know, the firm has exhausted its ability to be able to sustain their own career development path. So what I found was, and that was really kind of that stuff harkened back to kind of, I guess, you know, the leadership stuff that I did as a kid in high school uh, was I loved those aspects of leadership, of kind of, you know, mentorship, career development and those types of things. So that's kind of thing one that I think you have to just learn to embrace. Um, two is, um, it's not necessarily, I don't, I don't think it's fair to say you embrace uncertainty, but you have to remember that, again, you're living in a world where there is no 100% or 99%. You're making decisions with limited information. And one of the things that I remember also Ben taught me very well was, look, like part of your job, whether you're the CEO of the company or you're a leader of an organization, is you've got to keep things moving forward, basically. Like the worst thing you can do as a leader is enable kind of stasis to creep into the organization, either because, you know, quite frankly, you're not doing a good job leading and people are doing a crappy job of their, of their roles, or because like you are becoming the bottleneck or you are basically analyzing things to the point where, you know, kind of you're creating uncertainty in the organization. So I think that's the other uh, second big piece is just making sure that, you know, kind of you don't let, you know, perfect become the, you know, uh, enemy of good in, in that respect and just recognize that it's okay to, you, you need to move things forward, even if it turns out, you know, you might um, uh, have to change course. You know, Ben Ben has a famous quote, which I, which I subscribe to all the time, which is, you know, consistency is not a goal, being right is the goal. And so you have to be able to recognize and, and, and embrace the fact that you may not be consistent from one day to the next, but that is just unfortunately part of the process. What matters is, are you getting to the right outcome at the end of the day? And sometimes that means, you know, following a circuitous path to get there. Um, and then for me, the final thing um, that, uh, you know, I, I kind of think about in those contexts is I hate uh, this interview question that you've probably gotten before, or maybe you haven't, which is, are you a micromanager or are you, I don't even know what the opposite of micromanager is. And uh, the reason I hate it is because I think it assumes like one size fits all. I mean, I think there are times as a manager where, look, in the perfect world, you would always be helping with objective setting and, and direction and things of that sort and not micromanaging. But there are some things and sometimes where you do have to micromanage. Sometimes there are things that are just literally so critically important that they require that level of kind of engagement from a manager. And then there's other times where micromanagement obviously becomes a symptom of a problem in the organization that you're not actually staffed appropriately and you don't have the right skill sets there. And so um, I just try to, at least as I've kind of, you know, transitioned people on my team who've gone from intro contributor roles to managerial roles to help people think about that context that, you know, often it's, it's not a style question. It's a question of like, what is happening at that time in the organization and or do you have um, actually fundamental organizational problems that you're not dealing with appropriately as a manager and think about it in that context versus a stylistic issue of, you know, do I like to micromanage or not? I don't think anybody likes to micromanage. The reality, though, is sometimes you have to, uh, you know, kind of at least be aware of what that is telling you about where there might be bottlenecks or issues inside the organization.
Yeah, I think that sort of thing, it seems like it's uh, more about finding a balance than like sort of falling neatly on one side or the other, and that it might be sort of as much or more so dependent on particular tasks and decisions and situations than just the people involved in it necessarily, that people can sort of flex to both sides of the spectrum, depending on the situation. And maybe that's for better in some situations, maybe it's for worse. But um, I'm curious about something you said, you know, in terms of um, avoiding stasis and, and keeping things moving forward, does that become a more challenging issue as things get larger, just sort of fundamentally, like A16Z, you know, early days, handful of people sort of necessarily moving fast, experimenting, trying new things, um, you know, just less people in the room, it's just easier to move, as you know, yeah. from sort of doing tasks on your own. Um, that's sort of the, the, the easiest to move fast, but there's benefits of a team. So now sort of large firm leader in VC sort of feels like there's something to lose where in the beginning, you know, there's nothing to lose. Does that issue become more difficult to overcome? Yeah, I think the answer is it can. And what it to me, like the conclusion, though, from all that is um, the organizational design and organizational structure is, is never static. If you're doing a good job as a CEO or a manager of a function, the organizational uh, uh, side of the, of, the, of the company, you know, how you organize, where the roles are, what people are doing, all that stuff has to constantly be revisited. So, you know, we've done this, I can tell you inside of A6 and Z, we've done this a million times, everything from like who attends what meeting and how many people there are. And one of the things we always look at in meetings is, okay, at what point do, do you get a bad ratio of observers to participants in meetings and how does that impact the fidelity of conversation? And I think you find the same thing in organizations, which is you're absolutely right. It gets more complicated, of course, as the organization grows, because sure, when there's five, 10 people and you can all sit in a room and everybody has full knowledge of everything that's happening in the organization, it's pretty easy, number one, to make sure things are happening. It's also pretty easy to course correct because, you know, you get feedback very quickly in an organization like that. And so I think um, the answer to your question is it's possible, I would say, where I feel good about, you know, the leadership that we have with Ben and Mark and, you know, uh, you know, hopefully I contribute some to that is we constantly think about the organizational structure of the business. And, you know, we can talk about this more as we get into the, the podcast and recognize that, again, yeah, what worked when we were 10, 15 people or 100 people doesn't work when you're 500 people. Um, and so you constantly have to rethink those things and how many degrees of separation are there between you getting feedback from people in the organization and how do you solicit that? And then also, you know, Ben obviously has written about this, but, you know, how do you overlay a set of cultural values on the organization that also enable the organization to function effectively uh, when, you know, you're not in the room? Uh, and you don't know what's happening, but do you have a common set of cultural goals and cultural values that people ascribe to that at least give them, they always give them kind of, you know, what the North Star is that they're trying to point to. So you're absolutely right. Uh, and I think, again, um, the, the solution, though, to that challenge is constantly spending time thinking about organizational design, organizational structure, and uh, making sure that you, you know, kind of recognize that everything has to evolve and adapt as the organization changes. Yep. And I'm, uh, I'm tempted to like put a pin in that and make sure to revisit it later. But you never know if you're going to actually end up coming back. So I'd like to actually just go further into that point, Great. if you don't mind on the organizational yeah. design and structure and how that's changed over time. Yeah. So let me give you let me just give you kind of the evolution of kind of how our thinking on this one is. So look, when we first started, as you would imagine, right, small team, you know, obviously, three of us was really small. But even as we grew, we had small teams. Uh, and if you think about our organization, I think of it as there's basically three kind of functions inside of the venture firm. There is people who spend their time on the investing side. There's people in our world, in the A16Z world, who spend time on what we call our operating team. So those are people who are principally working with portfolio companies and with external 
uh, partners to kind of help, you know, uh, our companies be successful. And then there's kind of uh, all the functions that are required to run a venture firm. So think of that as, you know, finance, legal, HR, accounting, you know, uh, compliance, all those kinds of things. So those are kind of the three roles just to kind of level set for the audience, how, how we think about the organizational structure. And when we first started, we had a very, very simple org structure, which was basically everything reported into me across those three domains. And we had we were each of those domains was small enough in and of itself that you could have, you know, general meetings with the people who were kind of managing parts of those organizations and feel like you knew what was happening. Um, a couple of things changed over time. Um, number one is, as you can imagine, just the sheer number of people grows to a point where uh, number one, you can't get everybody in the room to have meetings. And as I mentioned, you get this kind of weird dynamic of kind of the relationship of observers to participants in a meeting. And I don't know what the right number is, but I would just say as a general rule, when the numerator, the number of observers gets too high, you just find it's a failure. The conversation breaks down pretty quickly. Um, the second thing that's happened along our journey is um, just the level of degree of specialization and complexity in the kind of areas of investment that we focus on has just continued to get greater and greater. And I, I don't think there's any reason to believe it won't be, it won't continue to be that way. I and mean, if you go back to the early days of venture capital, almost all these firms are what you would call generalist firms. You know, if you go back to the 1970s, which is when a lot of the kind of early Silicon Valley firms started, you would think of them broadly as generalist firms. They had, you know, people who were either operators or finance folks who generally understood, you know, really broad buckets. Let's call it like enterprise or consumer was basically kind of probably the two things that they did. And obviously some of them, of course, did some bio and healthcare, but, and they were generally generalist firms, I would say, and they were composed of small numbers of people. And that's how a lot of the evolution of those firms, uh, you know, was for the first 35 years or so. I think the other big thing that's caused organizational uh, realignment for us is just as these markets have gotten bigger and more complex, right? There are sub markets within all these markets, right? So enterprise breaks out into infrastructure and applications and security and, um, you know, I, you know, all the different layers of the tech stack, obviously, even within AI today, right? People talk about AI as a broad category, but if you literally build the market map, these market maps get extremely complex very quickly. So if you put those two things together, which is how do you ensure high fidelity of conversation uh, to make good investment decisions, coupled with the fact that, um, you know, kind of these markets are so deep and require so much specialization. The big evolution that we've had as a firm is to really go to what we call a vertical model, essentially, where we have literally broken out, not just by fund, but also by teams um, into, you know, deep sub verticals so that you get um, deep specialization among investing partners and you also get a small enough people uh, now sitting around a table being able to talk at a substantive level about deals um, so that you don't have, you know, kind of people who may not have enough domain expertise or people who are just kind of, you know, they're observing, you know, impacting potentially the fidelity of those conversations. So that was kind of thing number one for us was kind of, let's call it, you know, we call it verticalization is what it is inside the firm. And then thing number two was, okay, along with that, then how do you make sure that you recognize what the operating needs are of each of those sub verticals of companies. So simple example, right? So what a crypto company needs to be successful in our mind is very different, obviously, than what a gaming company needs. So, you know, as you can imagine, crypto companies need, you know, regulatory help. They need to understand token economics. You know, there's all kinds of, you know, other deep things they need, whereas a gaming company probably needs relationships with studios or they need some deep design or other expertise. And so the second kind of organizational change that we've made over time was basically to kind of uh, marry essentially all these operating teams that had been horizontal by nature, but but basically now 
assign them into the vertical so that that way, you know, as an example, you have a single crypto team that now encompasses all the operating people who are responsible for helping the portfolio companies, as well as all of the investing people in that group. So you get like deep specialization of everybody who understands the domain and you at least keep the size of the teams down to a reasonable and rational level that helps uh, helps you kind of, again, ensure high fidelity of decision making. So that's kind of the big picture evolution of how we think about it. And look, our, our general view is over time, these markets are going to get deeper and more complex. And so uh, we think we will have to continue to think about how do you decompose the individual units of work basically inside of a venture capital firm? Um, because, uh, you know, the days of kind of the general four person, six person, you know, generalist firm where, you know, you could cover 90% of what was out there in the, in the domain with, you know, kind of people who were smart business people and entrepreneurs um, has just kind of, you know, disappeared. And what's really required today is just a level of deep specialization that um, uh, we think is just critical for the future of the, of the firm, success of the firm. That's really an interesting perspective. And uh, I'm curious sort of to double down on the verticalization point. Like how does, um, how, how do you determine, you know, okay, now it's time to do a distinct crypto fund yeah. or a bio fund. What's the process from something going from like, okay, this is maybe taking a good number of dollars from our general fund that we're allocating to the space. And we're starting to think about it as maybe spinning it out as own vertical to like, okay, now it's time. And then now, you know, you guys obviously have a huge crypto fund and have done a few of them. Um, so there's like a whole life cycle there for um, each distinct vertical. And maybe they have unique stories, maybe there's commonalities between them, but I'm curious sort of how that's gone historically. Yeah, it's really a couple of things. So, I mean, number one, it's just a real bottoms up question, which is okay, like, are these categories big enough and important enough? And do we think they are sustaining enough so that they can support, you know, a standalone team, uh, you know, a standalone fund structure? You know, as you probably know, when LPs invest in, you know, funds, they want to do so because they believe they're making, you know, a 10, 20, 30 year commitment. You know, obviously, you know, it's hard for anybody to see out, you know, much beyond that. But we don't want to we, don't, we want to make sure that there is enough kind of sustenance uh, and sustainability within the category. So that's kind of thing number one and that the category has sufficient scale and scope. So, you know, look at, you know, a lot of things you look at is, OK, like what are the talent flows into the industry? What are really smart you know, uh, people who are coming out of school and starting companies, what are they choosing to do? And hopefully that's a pretty good indicator. Talent flows are a pretty good indicator of kind of what the future opportunity set will look like. So that's kind of thing number one. Um, you know, thing number two then is, okay, you know, is a little bit of the specialization point I mentioned, which is, okay, do you need, is there a need for depth and specialization? And, you know, there are some places where maybe the answer is no, like, um, you know, I'll pick an example, which is, okay, maybe if you're doing general consumer apps, you know, maybe that's not, maybe, maybe, uh, you know, kind of there's enough commonality among some of those companies that you don't need it. But when you get to things like crypto or gaming or, you know, AI infrastructure, for example, or, you know, another good one would be, you know, we do a lot of stuff in the biohealth side. You know, if you're not living and breathing and know every single startup who's doing some kind of drug development process, um, you know, around cancer drugs or something, like you're kidding yourself if you think you can actually pick winners because you just don't have full visibility in what's happening. So kind of that level of specialization and kind of, again, depth of market is probably kind of thing number two that I point to. Uh, and then the third thing is just, you know, again, um, what we find is to hire, you know, the kinds of like, you know, really high performing GPs that we, that we have, we want to make sure that, you know, they, a lot of them want to feel like, okay, um, I love being part of a firm, uh, but I also want the benefits of kind of having you know, I, I wouldn't call it my own PL, but having kind of the idea of, you know, am I, do I have control of my own destiny from an investment perspective and from a resource allocation perspective? 
And so that's the other thing is just making sure that you have kind of an archetype of general partner who likes the idea of obviously investing, but also quite frankly, in some places, you know, uh, playing the role of a general manager inside of a vertical organization. So that's kind of the rough calculus. And so not everything falls into that category, but, um, you know, our bias these days is that, you know, if things are big enough and worth doing as an investment platform, then they're probably worth some level of specialization to make sure that we are competing, you know, hopefully at the highest and deepest level that we possibly can. Right. And uh, to that point on sort of bringing in a certain archetype of general partner, I know like one of the big sort of inflection points in A16Z's history was bringing on sort of like the first outside GPs, not people that you were sort of like familiar with or had worked with together in the past, but really realizing that you wanted to expand that team. And part of that might have been sort of with an eye on this vertical structure that that could emerge in the future. Um, and obviously, like over time, you sort of, you know, at, at first you might every all investment decisions run through like Ben and Mark or whatever it might be. And then um, over time, that becomes more and more of like maybe a formality to get it checked by them. And now I don't even know across like, all of the funds, if if you or they even have to sign off, or if there's sort of autonomy among some of the GPs you've brought on, and so obviously there's like a ton of trust that's required there because these new GPs, um, obviously, you know, not referencing the ones from the beginning anymore, but now the newest GPs you're bringing in, like within the last couple of years, have a ton of um, you know influence on on how the fund does at large, at least through their decisions and their vertical. Um, what do you look for in new partners? Um, sort of in the last few years, like sort of the latest chapter of A16Z, do you have any sort of particular strategy for um, not only a GP that fits the archetype that you previously previously described, where they might be excited to sort of be in this type of model and catch what you kill and sort of be more of like a general manager type for their vertical, but um, other sort of aspects of things you think for obviously being a founder, former founder is a big piece of it as well. And uh, just yeah. curious, sort of other criteria or even sort of practical strategy you go about finding these people? Yeah, let me, uh, I'll, I'm going to answer that, but I want to, before I answer that, I want to go back to one thing you said about kind of the role of Mark and Ben. And, uh, and this is an area where I have to say, like, I give the two of them just a tremendous amount of credit. So when they, when they started the firm and then as the firm has evolved, you know, we just, we just hit our 14th year anniversary in June. So we're kind of uh, well on our way now. One of the most important things that they realized and, and, and uh, were very, you know, kind of magnanimous about was, look, you can't build a firm where you have two people basically who are the decision makers on everything and where people feel like, you know, I'm sitting at the kids table and I have to go like ask the parents basically for permission to do something. And they were super appreciative about this very early on. And a lot of it is, you know, they did a lot of studying of, you know, kind of prior venture capital models and you know, unfortunately for, you know, firms that have struggled with generational transition, one of the issues has been that, which is, do you have people who are not founders who are, you know, empowered to do the things you want them to do? And that's obviously, you know, partly an economic question. That's partly a, um, you know, kind of organizational question. And to their credit, like they always were very clear about like how they wanted the evolution of the firm on decision-making to transpire. So just to kind of make sure uh, for the listeners, at the end of the day, like there is no Mark and Ben decision on a deal. Basically, you know, if I'm a partner, uh, you know, I, I happen to spend time in the growth side of the business. Like if I'm in the growth side of the business and I've done my homework and I've kind of, you know, done the right process from an investment perspective, like I, I have full authority to basically be able to make an investment decision. I, I don't need, you know, Mark and Ben to sign off, nor does any other general partner need one. Um and so it's a real, we really think of investment decision-making ultimately as that is an individual job, which is at some point, some GP has to stand up and say, 
I've heard all the feedback that everybody else has given me. I understand that. And that's all great. But like, here's the reasons why I want to do this deal. And I want to spend the next 10, 12 years of my life working on this thing. And uh, we've, that's a really, really important part of kind of how the firm is run. And as I said, I think, you know, a real testament to how Mark and Ben thought about um, building, quite frankly, a firm as opposed to a collection of general partners who ultimately feel like they kind of are, you know, uh, have to go basically get permission to do things. Um, so what does that lead to, to your question? And what does that lead to in terms of GPs? So there's a couple of things. I mean, the fundamental way to think about the main criteria at the end of the day for a general partner is, are you maximally attractive to the very best entrepreneurs in the domain that you're focused on? And the theory behind that is a couple fold. Number one is um, in this business, um, as much as obviously venture capitalists, you know, kind of, you know, pick the deals they want to fund. The big change, as you well know, that's happened over the last, you know, kind of 10 to 15 years in this business is, you know, just just finding the great companies is not sufficient anymore. You have to also convince the entrepreneur why they want to work with you versus any of the other number of firms that they could choose from. There's there's obviously lots of choice out there. There's plenty of capital. Um, and so a huge part of kind of what we think distinguishes a good general partner is um, what is it that they bring to the table that enables them to attract the very best entrepreneurs? In some cases, that might be somebody like Martin Casado on our team who is just like, you know, a super, super deep expert on networking technology and infrastructure and AI, uh, coupled with the fact that he started his own company and, you know, kind of uh, ran that until it was sold to VMware and then was a very senior executive at VMware. So like somebody who has like deep domain expertise in particular areas and coupling that with like, you know, major operational experience, that's one way to evidence, you know, attractiveness to an entrepreneur. The, there are other people like, uh, you know, Connie Chan, uh, uh, who is, you know, a super deep expert on in consumer business models and in particular, how does uh, what what uh, has worked in China and how might that or might not that be applicable to U.S. businesses with similar characteristics. And so people seek her out for that kind of uh, expertise. So there's lots of ways to kind of do that. But that's kind of the top level way to think about it is what ultimately enables you to be able to kind of pick the best opportunities, but also as corollary, be able to make sure that you are attractive to those entrepreneurs so that you can win in a highly competitive environment. Um, and then the second, you know, big thing, um, uh, which is, you know, I, I guess I'd call it more of a cultural thing is, look, we, we believe very strongly in the power of teams over individuals here. And I think that's a function of all of us having come from operating backgrounds where we recognize that companies, you know, work because teams are able to work together as opposed to necessarily you have a just a great collection of really smart individual contributors. And so the other kind of key criteria that we're always trying to value with general partners is like, do they do they want to be part of the team and can they utilize the team in the places where utilizing a team makes sense? And so, as I mentioned, we're not talking about team decision-making on deals. We believe very strongly ultimately that that is something that an individual GP you know, should do on his or her own. But we do believe that there is a team process to diligence and a team process to showcasing how the firm can be valuable to an entrepreneur so that, you know, kind of we want people who are excited about and quite frankly comfortable that maybe the best way to kind of, you know, uh, convince an entrepreneur that they're the right person is to showcase other members of the of the ACCC organization in a way and, and the ways in which they can be valuable to that entrepreneur. So we want people who are, um, I would say, certainly, you know, confident in their own decision making as it relates to decisions, but who recognize that the process for gathering information, the process for approaching a deal, the process for getting help for a company, whatever the case may be, that those are things that actually can benefit from, you know, quite frankly, being part of a, you know, a single team.
Right. And I, I want to double click a little bit on the first criteria that you sort of mentioned, which is sort of finding general partners who are maximally attractive to the entrepreneurs in that space. And uh, so I sort of think about this as like a magnet, basically, like finding magnets who can bring in, you know, attract the right deal flow. And then, of course, selection is a challenge in and of itself. But like you said, um, if you have the deal flow and, you know, basically the selection is always going to be a challenge. But if you don't have the deal flow and the desire from entrepreneurs to have you on their cap table, then, you know, you can be the best picker in the world and half the deals that you want to get into, you, you won't be able to get into. So that's like a huge challenge. And I think um, part of that, but sort of becoming a magnet in, in sort of the modern world is like developing, obviously, like an, an internet brand and, sure. um, you know, participating in like leveraged opportunities to create content and build audience and things like this. And A16Z has very clearly like doubled and tripled down on this in terms of sort of becoming a media brand alongside being a venture capital firm. And you know, there's countless examples. You guys obviously have various podcasts. You've written a book. Uh, many of the partners have written a book. Chris Dixon has one coming out. Andrew Chen wrote one, I think, last year. Um, yeah. So all the partners and, you know, Mark and Ben were doing a, an awesome uh, clubhouse for a while. It was like one-on-one -on -one with ANZ or something like that. Yeah, that yeah, I listen yeah. to like every episode. So basically anywhere there's a possibility to create um, some content and sort of get the word out on what A16Z is, who these partners are, what they're thinking about, what their visions for the future of the verticals are. Um, you guys are doing it. So how much of that was like a conscious decision? Does it relate to this sort of like being a magnet as a brand and individuals? And um, what's sort of like your future, uh, you know, vision for how that media brand kind of pairs with the VC company? Yeah, so a couple thoughts there. So, well, I mean, one of the first hires that we made was a a, a woman who still uh, uh, runs marketing for us at the firm named Margaret Wenmachers, who is a real expert in, in this area. And the theory behind it at the time, and at the time, look, I, I, I'll fully acknowledge, like, that was, it was kind of somewhat verboten in the venture capital industry, right? This idea of kind of creating your own content or doing, you know, kind of anything that looked like PR and marketing was just, you know, not, you know, it was not the way, and I, and I did air quotes there, uh, of how, uh, of how these venture firms worked. You know, our bias coming in was we had all come from the operating world, right? And so we looked at this just from a simple business perspective and said, look, in business, to be successful in business, you have to have sales and you have to have marketing. Like, you know, maybe there's some magic business model in the world that doesn't have those things. But at the end of the day, like successful companies, you know, have competencies in R&D and they have competencies in, you know, finance and accounting and HR and other things. And they also have to have competency in, in sales and marketing. You have to actually tell the client, the prospective client, what it is that you do uh, that has value to them that, that you know, uh, makes them desire to basically become a customer uh, in a, you know, in a normal product setting or a service setting. And the honest answer is like, I don't think venture capital is any different. Um, and maybe it operated in a certain way when it was a much smaller, more cottage-based industry. But the reality is now there are plenty of players, there's plenty of capital out there. And so our, our going in assumption was always, um, if we want to be able to attract the very best entrepreneurs, the first thing we have to do is tell them who we are, what do we stand for, what are our views and ideas in the world. And so that was really the original basis for kind of bringing on market um, and she did a, you know, has has done and continues to do a, a, like an amazing job for us. So yeah, I think the way to think about it is everything you see us do from a content perspective is uh, a way for us to basically communicate, you know, one to many about, you know, what do we think about the world? And and everybody may not agree with everything we say, and that's totally fine. But the hope is that you know, if you are, you know, in the let's say you're you're a crypto entrepreneur and you read something that that Chris Dixon wrote or you hear a podcast that he did. Um, that you kind of listen to that and you say, wow, okay, like that's a really smart, interesting person. He's got really interesting ideas about the industry. I may not agree with everything he says, but 
like, you know, that's the kind of person who I feel like, you know, I could learn from and I'd want to work with and would be valuable as I think about building my company. So that's really basically the, the, the strategy and why we've done that. And, you know, some, to your point, look, some general partners embrace it more than others, and it's not the only medium to do it. And, and some people are more comfortable just doing one-on-one -on -one stuff. But I think we find that it's a very efficient way because it is one to many to be able to kind of, you know, promulgate ideas that at least we have out there. And, you know, the hope is that some people, some entrepreneurs read those ideas and say, okay, like at a very, at the very least, like I'd like to meet the, you know, the people in this firm because, you know, they're saying things that have some resonance with how I think about the world. Right. Okay. So um, that, that's really helpful. So I think uh, one more question, because we're coming up on time, uh, but yeah. I've sort of, you know, in talking to people and listening to, uh, you know, you on other podcasts and things like this, uh, I understand you've got a bit of a reputation as like a, an execution machine, or maybe there's a better word for that, but really <laughs> just can operate like crazy. And I think you yourself said, uh, I was listening to, I think it was the Harry Stebbings podcast that you did, yeah, which yeah. was great and recommend people go listen to that one as well after this. But uh you sort of, I think he asked your superpower and you said juggling 50 things at once and still making everyone feel like they're the most important thing that you're working on. So, uh, you know, obviously a lot of people have difficulty with that, just doing a few things at once and making anyone feel important, but doing so many things and making everyone feel so important. What are sort of like uh, principles that you take in day in and day out to sort of do things the way that you do that you think are just super helpful for operating on an everyday perspective? Yeah, I'll give you so I'll give you two thoughts on that. One is just uh, so Mark. Uh, Mark used to call me uh, when he would introduce me uh, to people when we first started the firm. Uh, he used to call me Slash, uh, and uh, the the nickname Slash was literally like my job was kind of like you know HR slash finance slash accounting slash take out the garbage slash you know whatever go to Costco and buy tables that we need for the firm. So uh, that's how I think how I developed that reputation was uh, Mark. Uh, Mark uh, maybe correctly so typecast me as somebody who uh, could multitask. Um, you know, look, uh, this may be one of those areas where it, this is better to do as I say than right. than to do as I do. Um, and um, uh, so, like, you know, I think I think I do a good job at multitasking and doing those things. I also think probably where I uh, probably fail sometimes is I probably assign too much equal weighting to everything that needs to get done and probably could do a much better job of thinking about uh, what's actually the right prioritization, the right way to spend time, because the problem if you don't do that is if you assign equal weighting, then the only variable you have is time. And so that just means you're going to spend more time either at your desk or on your computer late at night. And uh, while uh, I've had more than my fair share of that in my career, I'm not sure that I would want everybody who's uh, earlier and younger in my career to aspire to that. I think uh, some of this is being ruthless about how you prioritize your time. But but yeah, look, I, 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 uh, I, I just try to have, I, I don't know if I have any secrets, I try to just have a good demeanor on things and recognize that, you know, anybody on the team who's doing something, unless you're a bad manager and you're assigning them things that don't need to be done, they care deeply about their work and uh, they're doing their best to get it done. And if you as a manager can't show them that same level of respect by answering their email in a timely fashion or, you know, picking up the phone when they call or being available to give them direction or just you're kind of sleepwalking through a meeting with them where you're not paying attention to what they're happening to their, what they're doing. I just think fundamentally you're not doing your job as a manager and there's probably more efficient ways to do it than the way I do it. But at least uh, uh, that's the fundamental principle that I'm trying to achieve. Yeah. And hey, I think sometimes you can prioritize and, and try to be as efficient as possible all you want. But if you're not actually like sort of acting and just cranking through items, you know, you, know, you might sort of spend all day prioritizing and, and not take care of your top priority. So there's something to sort of both sides of that, I think. There is no substitute for action at the end of the day. 
Exactly. Well, uh, Scott, I know we're up on time, but I really appreciate you coming on and taking the time. It's been an awesome conversation and I really enjoyed sort of preparing for, for this and uh, listening to all the podcasts you've done and things that you've written in the past. It was, it was a real pleasure. And, uh, you know, the conversation certainly did not disappoint. So I appreciate <laughs> you coming on and uh, looking forward to keeping in touch. Where, where can people go and, uh, you know, read the book or follow you on Twitter? Where do you want to send people? Sure. Yeah, I appreciate it, uh, Jake. Again, thanks for having me. So uh, easiest way to follow me is uh, at S-K-U-P-O-R on Twitter. Um, I uh, will give you the full warning, which is, uh, you know, I sometimes tweet uh, A16Z related stuff, but I often look for things that are a little bit off the beaten path. So uh, I, I try not to be duplicative to all the other uh, tech related uh, folks that you can follow. But that's the best place to go. Um, obviously, if anybody's bored and needs to read a book, uh, you can go find that on Amazon, Secrets of Sand Hill Road. But again, really appreciate the opportunity and look forward to staying in touch.